We're in a series called Family Vacation. Now, for those of you who've been here the last few weeks, you know what it is. If, if you're a guest this morning, we got to thinking, you know, during this time of the year, so many people travel across the country, sometimes around the world, to celebrate vacations. But if you were taking a vacation in Bible times, where would you have gone to celebrate a vacation? So we tried to think of all the neat places in the Bible or experiences where you might have gone on vacation. Today, we're down by the riverside. Joshua chapter 3 and 4. If you want to turn in your Bibles or your cell phones or your iPads or whatever you got and, and follow along, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, rivers have played an integral part and role in civilization from the very beginning of time. The very cradle of humanity, the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, had a river that went right through the garden and it became the headwaters for four major rivers, two of which we know still flow today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Adam and Eve would have understood what we meant when we said, let's have a picnic down by the riverside. wonder how many times they spent down by the riverside. And down by the riverside was the preferred location for settlements years ago that today have grown into huge cities. Uh, just look at the Ohio River. Just take the Ohio, for, for example. We have Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Wheeling, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky, Evansville, Indiana, all big cities located on the river and lots of smaller cities as well. Down by the riverside is where people have gone throughout history to travel from place to place because water travel was so easy. Washing clothes in pioneer days, fishing for food, or just enjoying a family picnic. I remember as a kid taking trips uh, to Cannelton, Indiana, back in the 1960s because they had just finished building the brand new locks at Cannelton on the Ohio River. And uh, you know, we'd go there and we'd watch the boats as they came into the locks and slowly as the water would raise or lower and then the boats would go out in, back into the water. I mean, this was a long process. You can tell it didn't take much to entertain me back uh, in that day and time. Even today, families vacation near rivers and reservoirs because there's always something to do. Rivers figure into the Bible narratives as well. The story of Moses begins on the banks of the Nile River. Naaman the leper washed himself seven times in the Jordan River and was healed of his leprosy. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And of course, the book of Revelation tells us that in the heavenly city, our eternal home, there is a river that runs right through the city, the river of life. This morning, I, I really want to tell you this incredible story that takes place also on the banks of the Jordan River at the end of that 40 years of wilderness wandering. Now, this is kind of like the other bookend from last week. Last week, we talked about the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and the grumbling and the murmuring and all the frustration that they experienced. This is the end of that story, a story that takes place about 3,400 years ago. Let me see if I can set the stage for it. 40 years have passed since the Israelites grumbled against God in those early weeks of their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And it was because of their grumbling, because of their lack of trust, because of their short-sighted faith that they wandered through the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. It wasn't that they were lost. It wasn't that God didn't know the way from Egypt to the promised land. It was that 40 years of wandering until this generation that came up out of Egypt, everybody that was older than 20 years of age, had died in the desert. When we come to this moment, it is only those people who were 20 years old and younger at the time of the crossing of the Red Sea that were able to go into the land. 
Now, I got to tell you, there would have been a handful of people who stood on the banks of the Jordan River at this time and had the same anxiety, same fear, same trepidation as they had felt 40 years early when they'd stood on the banks of the Red Sea with, the Pharaoh of Egypt, with Pharaoh's army of Egypt right behind them. Because you see, the, the Jordan River at this particular point was at flood stage. It is my understanding that when the Jordan River is at flood stage, it is as wide as a football field is long. And it just rips through the countryside. It can gain speeds as fast as 10 miles an hour. And the name Jordan means descender. And, and it is literally true. From where the Jordan River begins at the Sea of Galilee until it empties into the Dead Sea, it descends about 1,000 feet in elevation. These people stood there realizing that they were so close to their objective. They had reached the promised land. It was just on the other side of the river, just on the other side of that football field. And yet it seemed so far away because how in the world could they get there? Now, there's another complicating factor involved in all this. Moses, their deliverer, is, is now dead. Moses, the guy that held the staff of God out over the Red Sea when it parted, he's gone. Who is going to lead this two million people across this river? How are we going to get into the promised land? In a moment reminiscent of the Red Sea, God instructs Joshua, Moses' successor. He said, you get the people ready because they're going to cross into the promised land. And we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set up from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it, Joshua told the people. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now, did you see it when we were reading through there? After three days. Here's one of those three-day stories. Are you getting used to finding those in the scriptures? Every time you come across one of those three-day stories, it is this marvelous way that God points us to the ultimate three-day story of the resurrection. Here they are on the banks of the Jordan River, down by the riverside, and they cannot see how any of this is going to be happening. They are fearful. They are anxious. Uh, this, is, this is a moment of trepidation for them. And for three days they wait, and it's after that that God does something miraculous beyond their imagination. I love the three-day stories throughout Scripture because if you look, you'll always see the fingerprint of God coming at that third day from the wilderness to the bounty of the promised land after three days. The Ark of the Covenant that Joshua mentions here was a relatively small box carried on poles by four Levites, one on each end of the two poles that passed through the hoops on the side of the Ark. It was a stunningly beautiful furnishing from the tabernacle that the Israelites knew was to point their attention to God. Now, folks, the Ark was not God. This is not an act of idolatry. The ark merely served as a representation of the presence of God among the people. Sort of like the pillar of fire at night during the wilderness and the pillar of cloud during the day. When the people saw the pillar of fire, when they saw the pillar of cloud, they knew that God was in their midst. 
Whenever the Israelites broke camp, it was the Ark of the Covenant that led the way. Whenever the Israelite army went into battle, it was the Ark of the Covenant that led them into battle. Then Joshua in verse 9 says, Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, uh, the Gigabites. <laughs> Just want to see if you were still listening. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now, you've got, you got to realize this. It was not until the feet of the priest went into the river that anything happened. This is so incredible. But when their feet touched the waters, that's when God stepped in and the waters began to roll back up the Jordan River. They say as much as 30 miles up to the city of Adam. And suddenly, this raging river that seemed so impassable, there was a dry riverbed. And two million people got ready to cross over. But remember, remember, nothing happened until they stepped into the water. Now, now, now let me add this thought here this morning. Sometimes life rushes by us like a swollen river at flood stage. The water is deep, the current is fast, and we stand on the banks fearfully contemplating what will happen if we step in. God's invitation is always to wade right in. And so life becomes a matter of trusting God when you cannot see the outcome on the other side. Is your home life, your family life today, like a swollen river where things are not well? Do you have a child whose life seems flooded with anger and bitterness and resentment toward you for something that happened in the past? Do you feel caught in the currents at work and powerless to make any change, but you got to still be there? Do you feel overwhelmed with a flood of grief and sorrow because you have buried the person you love most in this world? Do you feel like you're drowning in a financial mess? The debts are piling up. There's not enough money to go around, and you, and you can't figure out how you're going to get through this mess? The pressure can be astounding. And this is what God says, trust me, put me first in your life, and I will work through these other areas in your life. But remember, the waters won't recede until you take the first step of faith in trusting God. It always seems to be a partnership with God. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? You know, God could say, y'all just step back and watch what I'm going to do for you. No, God always says, if there's something we can do, that's what we're supposed to do. God basically said, I'm not doing anything until you step in the water. You read throughout the Bible, there's always this partnership. God has great things to do, but he always works with us and through us. It was not until the priest stepped in that God said, okay, I'm ready now. He calls us to do our best, and then he'll do the rest. It's a partnership. The Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the middle of the riverbed, and that's where they stopped. And they remained there until the whole nation had crossed over. Now, what an awesome picture this was. Only if we will keep the Lord in the very center of our lives, in the very middle of everything that goes on around us, will we be able to make it through the swollen river crises of our life. And then notice what happens next in Joshua chapter 4, verse 4. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from every tribe. 
And he said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder. This is not a handheld stone. This is a massive stone to put on your shoulder according to the number of tribes of Israelites. To serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now, I see in this story a design that is worth following. Wisdom that is worth imitating. God was teaching his people how to handle crisis moments in their lives. And the keys are still as valuable today as they were 3,400 years ago. Now, I'm going to break them down into four words for it, because I figure one word is easier to remember than a whole mouthful of words, all right? And so we're going to go through these four words this morning. I'll explain a little bit about them, but I want you to remember these four words because they are the keys to getting through the crisis moments of life. Here's the first one. Consecrate. Would you say it out loud with me? Consecrate. If you say it, see it, and hear it all at the same time, it tends to stick better. That's why I'm, I wanted you to say it out loud. Consecrate. What in the world does the word consecrate mean? And some of you are saying, I know what that is. That's that small can of orange juice in the freezer section of the grocery store. Consecrate. No, that's concentrate, all right? Consecrate is a word we don't use very often anymore, but it's an important concept. President Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address said this, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. Simply put, consecrate means to dedicate oneself to a divine or sacred purpose. It is the idea of separating and putting distance between that which is sacred and that which is common. In other words, what Joshua was telling the people was this is no time to be casual. This is no time to be nonchalant. God is at work in our midst, and he deserves our undivided attention. So consecrate yourselves. On other occasions in the Old Testament, when the people of God were, were called to consecrate themselves, it involved washing and putting on clean clothes, simply as an illustration that we want to take everything that is common and put it over here, and we want to take everything that is divine and put it over here. We want to see that there is a gulf, there's a divide between that which is ordinary and that which is extraordinary consecrate yourselves and if that call for consecration wasn't clear enough there was the reminder that when the people crossed the Jordan on that dry land of the riverbed to steer clear of the ark did you see it stay a thousand yards away don't even think of getting close and we do know that the ark of the covenant if somebody touched the ark they died instantly and so God says you, you just stay clear Again, it, it was a reminder to the people that while God is loving and gracious, he is not our buddy. This is all about the profound, awesome nature of God, that he is way out of our league, folks. The book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God loves us. We are his people, but he's not our buddy. He's not our best friend. He is the God of the universe, and we dare not forget that divide. 
As a matter of fact, we, we sort of understand that in our world today, too. I mean, are you familiar with what royal protocol comes uh, about uh, with regard to, say, the Queen of England? Okay, so should the Queen of England ever worship at 11 o'clock here in our midst? When it comes to the meet and greet time, you need to know how to act. All right, you ready? Okay, royal protocol says you do not shake the queen's hand. You do not extend your hand to the queen. As a matter of fact, you don't touch the queen. You don't hug the queen. Now, if she extends her hand to you, you may shake it. But you never take the first move. And as lovely as the queen of England is, I remind you, she is a mere mortal like the rest of us. If that's royal protocol, in our midst, imagine what consecrate is in the presence of the living and almighty God. So what's this mean for us today? Well, may I suggest that we don't take the Lord for granted, that we don't approach him casually or flippantly as if he's as common as an old shoe, and that we never think of him as the man upstairs. I fear sometimes that in our casual society today, we can easily overlook the importance of being Reverent, consecrated, devoted, are committed to God first and foremost. Consecrate yourselves. Here's the second word. Listen. Say it out loud with me. Listen. Actually, the scripture puts it this way in verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Again, stop what you're doing. This demands your full attention. God is about to tell us something. You need to be completely focused. Now, I've noticed this. Listening gets harder as we grow older. I've mentioned to you before that I've lost considerable hearing in my left ear. I think that's the result of a lot of ear infections that I had as a child. But I, I have tinnitus in that ear. I've got this constant ringing in my left ear. And it's really beginning to mess with conversations. And you can, you can talk to my family. There's things I get mixed up. There's things I don't hear. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's not good. And I know what the solution is. I just am reluctant to go there, all right? This aging business is challenging. I'm here to tell you, hey, at this point in my life, forget about the health food. I need all the preservatives I can get. Let me tell you. <laughs> Being able to hear makes a real difference. <laughs> Did you hear about the elderly couple who neither one of them could hear real good, but they were sitting in their living room, and the husband looked over at his wife of uh, 50 years, and a smile crossed his face, and he said, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. She glared back at him, and she says, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> Laughter. Listening makes a difference, I'm here to tell you. A healthy eardrum is a semi-translucent and light-reflective eardrum. An unhealthy eardrum appears dull, cloudy, no light reflects from it. Hearing is impaired with a dull eardrum. Do you suppose God was reminding his people, don't be dull when it comes to listening to my counsel and wisdom? The light of my word needs to reflect in your life. Don't be dull. God's word is a wealth of advice that will help us through life if we will listen. 
President Ronald Reagan said once, of the many influences that have shaped the United States of America into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. Well, he was right on target. Listen. Third word, follow. Say it out loud with me. Follow. As Joshua prepared the people for the life-changing, historic-making moment, he assured them that this is how they would know that the living God was among them and that he would keep his promise to drive out the nations that were across the river. He said, see, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now, if you have something really valuable, something really precious, you try to protect it. It would stand to reason, wouldn't it, that as beautiful and, and as, as awesome as the Ark of the Covenant was, as precious and valuable as it was, you'd have kept that on the banks until everybody was across. And when there was nobody else around to mess with it, you'd have brought it over safely. Oh, no. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, and God said, I'm going before you. I will lead the way. The Lord is always out in front of his people. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd does not drive the sheep. A shepherd leads the sheep. And did you notice that Joshua described God as the living God? God was not in this box. God was not a part of the box. When, when he went into the water, it was a visual reminder that God is already there where I am Heading. It was a representation of God. Whenever I conduct the funeral of a U.S. veteran, there is usually an honor guard at the cemetery. And when the military portion, the 21-gun salute, and so forth is complete, the member of the honor guard so designated takes that properly folded American flag, steps to the next of kin, presents the flag to that person, and and begins with these words, on behalf of the President of the United States and a grateful nation. No one there misunderstands that. He's not the President. But at that moment, he is representing the President. He is speaking on behalf of the President. He's speaking on behalf of us as a grateful nation and well so for those who have sacrificed so much for our country. No one misunderstands that. The Israelites didn't get this wrong. They just knew the box represented the presence of God. They could see the ark. And when the ark went into the middle of the, of, of the stream and the waters rolled back, they knew that God was there in their crisis moment. Now, we can get, uh, we can get kind of discouraged here in America when we look at our culture around us, but, but, but the stats are not really all that bad. Christianity is the largest religious tradition in all 50 states, and are you ready for this? And in every single county. 3,143 counties. We really are rooted in Christ. But there is a vast difference in being rooted in Christ and following him. I mean, you can be non-moving and still be rooted. That's not what God asks us to do. He asks us to follow where he leads. And did you notice why? In verse 4 it says, Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. Wow. All my life has been lived like that. I mean, I, you, you, yours too. 
I mean, I, I've never been this way before. When I became an adult, when I became a minister, when I became a husband, when I became a father, when I became a grandfather, I, I'm learning on the fly, people. I've never been here before. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning as I go. And I will tell you this. I feel like I know less now than I have ever known and understood in my life. If ever I needed someone that was trustworthy to follow, it is now. How about you? Whenever I look ahead, I know I've never been there before. But God, God is already there. God is always moving ahead of us. God is also saying, follow me. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So when you look into tomorrow, just know this. He's already there and asking you to follow. We used to sing this little song in church camp. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Who you want to follow in your life? One of us or the living God who's already in tomorrow? Follow. Last word. Remember. Say it out loud with me. Remember. Remember what the Lord did here today. While the ark remained in the middle of the riverbed, the men appointed to represent each one of the tribes went in, took out these huge stones, and they built them up into a memorial, a monument on the promised land side of the river. And what we oftentimes overlook is that Joshua built a monument right in the middle of the river where the ark had been standing. He puts 12 stones together so that they would actually poke out of the top of the river. And 20 years later, when the book of Joshua is written down, those stones on the side of the riverbank and those stones in the riverbed were still visible to people who passed by. And here was their purpose. He said, so that when your children come by here and they say, what is this? You can answer them. Now, just, just picture this. Here's a grandfather and his grandson walking down that way. And the little, little grandson says, hey, grandpa, what's, what's this group of stones mean? And grandpa says, oh, son, let me, let me tell you. That was one of the grandest moments of my life. And he tells the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And then he tells the story of the crossing of the Jordan and ties those moments together. He said, don't ever forget what God did to bring us into this land. Jesus did the same thing on the night before he went to the cross. He took a little bit of bread and he took a cup and he said, eat this bread and drink this cup and remember what I did as long as you live. We're 2,000 years on this side of that and we still keep remembering. So let me ask you this question this morning. What marker stones are you leaving behind in your life to help future generations navigate their spiritual journeys? What monuments of actions and deeds and words have you left behind that will help them be guided and directed in their lives ahead? What will be your spiritual heritage and your legacy to those who will follow in your footsteps? Because I'm here to tell you, we owe those who came before us a whole lot more than we sometimes realize. It wasn't really until I got into ministry that I realized how much I owed those of the past. I learned just a few years ago that my great-great-grandfather, Abner Connor, was a farmer and circuit-riding preacher in southern Indiana. Um, during his time, 
during his ministry. He rode 20,000 miles on horseback. He conducted revivals that were two and three weeks long. Uh, he saw and witnessed 5,000 people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Wow. I got to tell you, I don't ride horses. I don't do three-week revivals because in our culture, they aren't effective. I don't farm on the side like my great-great-grandfather did. I don't dress like my great-great-grandfather would have dressed. My preaching style is different than what was used in the 1800s. I compose my sermons by using a computer. <laughs> my great-great-grandfather wouldn't have had a clue what something like that would have been. I'm a part of a congregation far larger than my great-great-grandfather would have envisioned 150 years ago. But folks, I am convinced this morning that I would not be in ministry I might not even be a Christian had it not been for my great-great-grandfather and the generations who have carefully passed down the faith from generation to generation. They left their marker stones down by the riverside so that I could see them and know where they had been and what God had been doing in their lives and so that I could come along and now it is my responsibility to leave my marker stones along the side of the riverbank for future generations. And I'm asking you, what are you doing? What are you doing? leaving to help the next generations remember that the power of God is at work in us today. I'm also convinced that while my great-great-grandfather and I would do ministry differently, he would understand completely the importance of consecrating, listening, following, and remembering. To do it any other way is foolish. Follow the God of the universe into tomorrow because he's already there.